When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When deciding to whether to sell your company, there's one major factor. Should you flex on your ex-girlfriend now or in five years? <laughs> <laughs> What's up, everybody? This is Michael Zakond here. I'm joined by my co-founder and co-host, Simran Sandhu, and we're bringing you another episode of Our Future Podcast, the entrepreneurship show for young people. And the reason I say that is because Simi and I sold our company at the ages of 22 and 24, respectively. And we've developed this incredible network of other young entrepreneurs who've been able to succeed early. So what we do is we interview them offline. Then we take their strategies, their tactics, and their story, and we retell it here for you guys on this podcast. We make it funny. We make it entertaining. And hopefully you walk away with some awesome insights and tactics that you can apply to your own entrepreneurial journey. So I'm stoked for this episode. It feels like clockwork now just to crank these fuckers out. You know, this podcast really is a bright point in my week. I love just chopping it up with you week after week. So our next founder is Jake Lewin. This guy is a stone cold killer and he he really impresses me. Uh, so gets kind of interested in business as an eighth grader, like the rest of us, wanted to build an app. But when he went to that, you know, website dev, you know, platform, they were like, oh, you know, you need 20 grand to build a prototype. So he's like, okay, I still want to build this app. How do I come up with 20 grand? So I think it's freshman year of high school, he learns about drop shipping. Um, and he encounters an issue in that, you know, he has like a couple hundred bucks saved up from birthday money and Shopify charges a $30 a month subscription. So how is he going to build a drop shipping store if he can't get a Shopify account? So this is what he this is the challenge he sets himself up with. He's got 14 days at a time until he has to create a new Shopify free trial with a new email. He's got 14 days to make uh, you know, a couple grand or whatever to to be able to fund like a year's worth of, of Shopify. And uh constantly is iterating quickly with new products. And eventually um he gets lucky with a jade roller, which is some kind of cosmetic product, kind of was working on social media uh, as a as a popular dropshipping product, and that uh, ends up getting him to to where he needs to be. Um, and then instead of building this app, he just kind of doubles down on dropshipping. And it's towards the end of high school um, that he starts to focus on a new dropshipping product, which is kind of his first breakout success, which is a company called Light, and he called it Light because like cellulite and like helping like older women kind of hide that with leggings. So, you know, he saw leggings, you know, they're kind of can be quite viral when they're attached to to an attractive influencer. And, you know, it's just, it's a sexy thing, right? So uh, goes all in on leggings, you know, brings on influencers and 
that business does well. Uh, he ends up selling it for $500,000 um, while he was a high school student, like still kind of wrapping up high school, which is crazy impressive uh, to two kind of moms in Florida. And then uh, he meets Oliver Bricado, um, who's a student at the University of Michigan. Um, I think he was a year below me at school. Um, and then somehow Jake ends up getting into Michigan as well. And um, they start thinking about this idea for a sex chocolate company. And, you know, Picasso, uh, good artist, copy, great artist, steal. They saw the product go viral on TikTok. And the big frame break was this product will go viral on its own. We don't need an attractive influencer to make it go viral, which I thought was like a really interesting thing. It's like sometimes products only work when a good influencer is behind them. Sometimes products can stand on their own. And I thought that was a great thesis for someone who'd sold a lot on social. Um, so they do tabs. A sex chocolate is an aphrodisiac chocolate, a very viral product. It's done hundreds, if not billions of views on TikTok. It's sold millions of dollars worth, 8.7 million in, in sales in total. But just to take you back in time, um, Jake left that company halfway through to start working on other ventures, but retained his equity stake. Um, and, uh, now he's working on a couple different projects, one in the liquor space, uh, one in the cannabis space, and we can get into them, but I mean, come on, like the kid's 21 years old, super impressive story. Yeah. He's super impressive. This guy is like the king of sin though. I mean, going from sex. Yeah to weed, to <laughs> liquor. I'm just like, yeah, yeah. and he does it with a straight face. Like, I loved our yeah. call with him because he was just, you could tell he didn't give a fuck. Like, if there yeah. is a dollar to be made, you will see my man in there. Uh, yeah. You know, he's like, oh, fighting you know, for the scraps for he's sure. He's like, oh, oh, teenage pregnancy, uh, alcoholism, <laughs> liver disease. What's that? What's that compared to my, mar my margin, right? He's like, yeah. Your he's like yeah he's like your vice is my margin like Jeff Bezos was like <laughs> like your your margin is my opportunity is like your addiction is is my opportunity so uh yeah he's done a great job of just focusing on these spaces that I think are maybe overlooked because of the stigma and yeah, he doesn't give a fuck like he's just about yeah. the money and maybe that's just like part of his skill set is like he is so practical and strategic that he doesn't give a fuck. If something is a little bit taboo or like a little bit weird, like he's just down to make money, right? Like, you know, he, he was Comes doing- down to what kind know, of business you want to build though, right? Like yeah. some people would feel very uncomfortable even if they were making millions of dollars building businesses in these spaces. Yeah, but like <laughs> for him, he just, he doesn't care. He, he strikes right. me as somebody who's like, he strikes yeah. me as somebody like, who's very calculated. He's kind of like Aaron <laughs> Spieback in, in some way yeah. from, uh, from Hush. Yeah, and that- the smile is very occasional. Um, the eyes are, are very uh, searing into your soul. And <laughs> you, you know they've got a bank account that's quite quite thick. Uh, you know, he's like the kind of guy that's like, oh, give me a million bucks, dress up like a monkey, fucking eat bananas, whatever, in Times Square. I'm making a million dollars. It doesn't matter, right? Uh, I don't, yeah. you know, I don't care what my parents think that I'm doing a sex chocolate business. Um, I'm going to do it and I'm going to get rich. So it's exactly what he did. Totally. I guess we can look at the first venture, which was drop shipping back in eighth grade. I have been binge reading the Elon Musk biography and two reoccurring points in that. Oh, did you buy it? Did you buy it? I did it? buy it. I did buy nice, it. Nice, nice. And I pretty much read through the whole thing in like two or three days ever since I left the Bay. Um, Damn. Two reoccurring points in that book is Elon would set insane deadlines that most people on his team didn't believe they could hit. 
And then he would set arbitrary cost limits and force everyone to spend as little money as possible. And again, this is drop shipping, right? So it's not exactly a direct parallel, but I feel like there's a component of that here, which is how much is a monthly subscription on Shopify? It's probably like 30 bucks a month, right? He can afford to pay that. That's not a, a huge cost, but forcing himself to come up with an idea and prove it out in two weeks. So again, he can avoid having to pay the 30 bucks, but also like it forces him to be very intentional and come up with something. I think a lot of young people should force themselves into these thought exercises or putting themselves yes, in these arbitrary positions where like yeah. they have to they have to figure it out in a small time just to see what they can do. What is it like under pressure? Yeah, it's like, you know, I think entrepreneurs uh, are really good at manufacturing like the chip on their shoulder or really good at manufacturing a situation that kind of justifies their success down the line. So it's like, oh, like, oh, like she she rejected me. It's like, bro, like she just didn't reply to your text one time. You didn't have to go and build a billion dollar <laughs> company, but you did. You didn't have you to. You did. <laughs> you didn't have to. Like she might have gone on a date with you, bro. Just like one text, but like, all right, billionaire. Um, <laughs> dude, men will literally build a billion dollar company before they go to therapy, which is just hilarious. You know, we're joking, but that actually is the case. Like, I've talked to a ton of super <laughs> successful people who are just like, yeah, this girl did me wrong. And like, that was all the fuel to the fire I needed to go do something really cool. And I just, Dude, I always remember that, that tweet I made. I was like, when uh, I was like, when deciding to whether to sell your company, there's one major factor. Should you flex on your ex-girlfriend now or in five years? <laughs> People love that one, bro. I was like so unhinged after the acquisition. Like that was like my peak time on Twitter. Uh, but but let's get let's get back to the story. I was watching this interview with this VC, and he was like, one one great piece of advice that I was given was your company should appeal to one of like the seven deadly sins, right? So like, there's greed and there's lust and there's like yeah. all this stuff and like yeah, obviously like tabs, you know, is part of that and like. I think something so interesting that Jake said, and it was just like so analytical. It was like, like a scientist in a lab looking at a guinea pig. It was like, people want to, at first, like feel like that is not for them, right? Like they almost want a product that feels like, oh, I would never do that, right? But like, you might want to, right? Like that voice in the back <laughs> of your head. It's like, you know. Nothing like a little temptation. I think what set them apart with tabs was they pioneered this marketing strategy, which I feel like most, if not all, e-com D2C companies are now implementing in one way, yeah. shape, or form, which is this idea of not deploying spend with big influencers, like how big brands would go go about this before, but instead making a mini army of influencers focused on a volume-driven approach. So you're just cranking out videos across several different accounts. You're popping up new accounts, and it's just creative, very raw um, organic advertisements, right? And the beauty of them is you don't realize it's a plug for a company until the very end. Like it's more of the, these use case style stories. And these guys came up with a really interesting marketing strategy, which was they learned that you actually can drive more conversions for a product, not in the initial video, but by responding to the top comment in a video. So making a reply video can enable you to sell more of your product, um, via TikTok. Really? That, that, that was the, the genius insight. And that's something Oliver talks about a lot. Really? It's replying to the comment about like some question they have about the product. 
Exactly. So they would manufacture a lot of the comments too. So you almost tee yourself up. If you have a really, really viral video, the goal is that you actually try to drive most of your conversions through a reply video to one of the top comments on there. Wow. Um, that is an that awesome little strategy. They drove a shit ton of conversions and sales, right? Because yeah. I actually like that for the standpoint that it forces you not to have to sell too much in the very first video. Like it, it removes the entire sales pitch because if you can drive enough curiosity and enough of people saying like, what the hell is this or where did you get it? Then you can kind of approach it with very high intensity and make a whole video just kind of shilling your product. Um, well, and I've yeah, seen this across yeah. D2C now. Yeah, with D2C, dude, supplements are a superpower, I feel like, for marketing. Like, you know, like the Red Bull gives you wings slogan? Like, it's like, oh, like, I'm like fucking tired. And then I drink a Red Bull and I'm like Superman. It's like, oh, I'm like this. And then I take a tabs and I'm really sexy and like, I'm, I'm going to crush it, right? Like, I think there's some element of a placebo here because it's like, oh, I took this supplement, which is we're going to come back to the, why that's important. Uh, but I took this supplement and it's going to do something for me. So you probably trick your brain. And that's probably yeah. what happens for people that have seen some benefit from using this, especially yeah. I don't think this thing is cheap either. How much is this chocolate? $27.99 for two boxes, $30 for one box. You paid 30 bucks for two boxes of chocolates. What I will say though, dude, is they did a great job of the branding. Like yeah. they uh they saw that someone was doing this product, but in like a non-sexy, luxurious way, and they they made it that way, right? Um, they really built like this kind of premium product and they had 12 suppliers just to make one box. And I was like, from they were like meticulous from everything from from the ridges to the texture. And I'm like, damn, like, yeah, uh, that is a lot of focus. This wasn't a get rich quick scheme. This was, wow, like let's really create a killer product. Right. Um, and who knows the efficacy, but like in terms of the packaging and the way it's presented, like genius. And for Jake specifically, how they came up with this idea was like the guy was literally on the toilet scrolling TikTok, and this caught his attention and they went yeah. and created a multi-million dollar business. So I, I don't know. Sometimes maybe it's just like keeping your eye out for like even the simplest opportunities. Maybe it is like, hey, this is a cool product. This guy is doing a horrible job branding it. Why can't I do a better job? Like this feels right. like such a low lift opportunity. But let's get into like some of his other businesses because it's really interesting, right? Like he he wanted to do a uh, checkout list um, retail company. So technology business. So essentially, you know, Amazon Go stores, you don't need to check out with like a human being. Uh, you just walk out, scans the, the products you brought in, has sophisticated tech. Uh, he wanted to put that in a box and license it, license it out to retailers. Um, but the, the challenge was, it was just really inaccurate and really hard to do. Um, I would have assumed to crack that, he would have needed a lot more funding and a lot more technical prowess. So he uh, was kind of in contact with a liquor store for that idea and he ends up learning about a new problem and that Michigan uh, releases price floors on different kinds of alcohol, whether it's a whiskey or a vodka or a beer every single quarter. So stores constantly have to update like that sticker underneath each item, like for the for the product, uh, for the QR code or whatever. And he was like, OK, um, let me create an app that allows you to kind of like just print out these stickers on the spot instead of having to order them from elsewhere. Um, and you can be a lot more dynamic about your pricing and just kind of like understand your profits a bit better on each product. The idea behind that was to 
somehow establish a deeper relationship with the customer by having them scan the QR code and then like learning about the reviews for the product or whatever, and then having the alcohol companies care about that exchange of information. But it turned out that it wasn't as fertile of an opportunity as he thought. But you, you jump in the rabbit hole for one thing, you'll learn about another opportunity kind of that's related and ciliary, right? Yeah, you open one door and 10 other doors kind of are yeah. now available for you to pursue. I just think it's funny. I'm like imagining this one guy who has a monopoly on the Michigan, pr- <laughs> Michigan price liquor tagging. stickers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, price tagging for liquor stores. Like, how the hell do you even fall into a business like this? He's He really has this knack for coming up with these like really strange ideas and making money from them. Yeah, yeah. Well, now he's trying to do cannabis. So he's like, okay, not in alcohol, going to cannabis, sex, liquor, cannabis. Um, so he... Because he, he's talking about this mechanic in grocery stores. We talked about this on last episode, slotting fees. So trade spend, like you have to pay to get the right placement on store shelves, but that's not happening in cannabis right now. Like dispensaries don't have like the sales infrastructure to be able to price out different placements in store. I guess right now they're just doing it arbitrarily, um, you know, based on which products they think will sell the best versus which companies are going to pay the best. So that's a trend he sees coming in cannabis but isn't quite here yet. So his idea is to create a marketplace in the cannabis category um, for brands to essentially slot and uh, get better placements in the on the physical destination. Uh, unlike groceries, most of cannabis sales happen on-premise uh, physically, right? So you're not really competing as much for digital advertising space like the Googles and Instacarts and stuff. You're competing for this physical interaction and where things are placed. So he's trying to get that done. Um, yeah, so. and it's like Jane, right? Like that's the other big cannabis company mm-hmm. in the in the space, and at least could yeah. be a, a good kind of benchmark for him. Yeah, dude, Jane's got a crazy story. Uh, Jane is kind of the Shopify of the cannabis industry, so yeah, it digitizes it digitizes brick and mortar dispensaries. It allows them to build a storefront online. Um, it allows them to to kind of display their products. And create a digital menu, and then it allows people to to kind of order via e-commerce, uh, potentially even delivery. Um, and then it also allows companies to advertise on those sites um, to to get you know preferred product placements. It's very much like the Instacart playbook, and in that Instacart also did this in helping stores white label like their own kind of delivery storefront. Um, but this is very much focused on like the physical side of things. So I actually think it's unique enough. Founder number two for the day, 24 year old, his name's Alan Maman, and he started a company called Bloom alongside Sam Yang and another co-founder, but it seems like that he's no longer a part of the company. What these guys did is they built a financial literacy app. It has over a million users on the, on the app and they just teach kids and, and younger people how to invest. Um, what they've done that's really, really interesting is they've kind of gamified the process. So you're going to hear a lot of parallels between between these guys' story and what you may have heard with Bolin back in Zogo in episode two. Um, But before we dive into that, let's talk a little bit about Alan's background. So Alan goes to school like every other kid, but he really doesn't like it. He even proudly states his 2.56 GPA in his LinkedIn, which kind of is his middle finger to school. And, you know, he's not a great student. And He has no real aspirations to go to college from what it sounds like, but his parents put this ultimatum in front of him, which was, hey, you're either going to college or you're getting kicked out of the house. So before they even, you know, finish saying that, he had packed up his bags and he was ready to go. So out he goes throughout the door and he finds himself in these cool opportunities where... 
He's doing some political consulting work. He's on Andrew Yang's campaign. Um, before he finds like his first like real appealing opportunity, which was creating memes for Vlad Tenev, who you might know as the CEO of Robinhood. He felt that Robinhood had misaligned the incentives. So what he wanted to do is approach the gamification process using the literacy angle. So through his app Bloom, you could actually finish these modules. You can do these fun games or whatever, and you're incentivized by these rewards that are redeemed and you can actually make real money from. So, um, you know, really scrappy guy and he's done something really cool with it. I believe he's raised over $4 million for this business. Um, but, you know, he's super bullish. He feels like he has a lot of room to run. So excited to just chop it up. Yeah, I think where Robinhood kind of fell off was uh, they were literally like an arcade game, right? But like the difference between Bloom and Robinhood is that Robinhood's arcade game was betting your money where yeah. on Bloom, the arcade game was more learning, right? So they definitely picked the right thing to gamify, right? Like, it was almost like a huge departure from what Robinhood did. And I think they're still suffering very deeply from the repercussions of of what happened, um, whether it was with GameStop or w- whether it was creating a casino of sorts for the retail investor. Um, but yeah, I mean, great story, right? Works at Robinhood, leaves to kind of build a competitor focused on an, an even younger demographic. And Robinhood was already a younger demographic. Um, but I think what's important to talk about is this parallel with the Zogo story is like, why do companies really care about young investors? And it's because, you know, the cost of customer acquisition in finance is extremely high. And the reason being is people hate moving their money between platforms, so if you can get someone at a young age, right, um, they might actually stick with your bank for life and you can graduate them into more products, right? It's a simple playbook. Every fintech company wants to do it. You know, we talked to Noah Kerner from Acorns in the interview episode, and that's exactly what they're doing, right? They just bought a company kind of like Bloom. It was uh, called Go Henry, And it actually goes to show why Bloom might be a good acquisition target. But I also want to touch on another thing, which is um, you don't always have to be first to win. There were so many companies in this fintech hype cycle in the late 2015s, 2016s, 2017s, you know, this company's getting started, new money companies, neobanks that wanted to serve this younger customer because we've seen this massive democratization of let's make a painting fractionalized. Let's make real estate fractionalized. Now let's let teenagers invest because historically you could do it. You just needed a parent to, you know, give, get you a Charles Schwab account and become the custodian and let you trade. But that was such a rich kid, Nepo baby thing, right? And now they've enabled teenagers to essentially create their own accounts, just simply add their parent, add their email address, and then they can trade. Given everything that happened in like the fintech space over the past few years, like it seemed late to the game, but it was actually an advantage. Remember this, um, I think it might've been the story that Sam told on MFM about how his friend like, saw recessions as the best time to advertise um, because they are. Um, so they were well capitalized going into the launch of the app. And then uh, the influencer rates on FinTalk and finance, TikTok, finance, uh, social media were much lower. So they're able to kind of uh, tap into that when they were hungry for deals, the influencers themselves, right? So they actually entered the market at a good time, even though what's it seemed that, late to me. What's that saying? Scared money, don't make money or something like that. Yeah, I feel like yeah. that's a direct analogy here. Yeah, 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 exactly. Scared money don't make money. <laughs> it does uh, not. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. But none, of, none uh, of this Scooby Doo shit. 
Yeah, you know what also is interesting about this whole space is how much it's cooled down. Just two or three years ago, the valuations were crazy. Like some of these companies had such little revenue and they were being valued at over $100 million. And now it's the stark contrast where not only is it much harder to get funding, but consumer investing isn't as cool as what it was two or three years ago when maybe Robinhood was still like big shit. I even think Robinhood is like probably a, a shell or a skeleton of what it formerly was. Like it's, it's, gone down significantly. Isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, we just saw Vlad at TechCrunch, right? Talking yeah. about trying to get into retirement accounts and stuff. I mean, that just feels like like a back against the wall type thing. It's it like, oh, like, like they're forcing gonna, it. Yeah. 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 Totally. It's like we're going to reinvent finance. Like I'm going to tell you about, you know, this thing your grandpa always told you to do. It's like, okay, well, it seems like the brand is trying to evolve and grow up, but it's almost like a teenager that like leaves rehab and now is like born again. It's like, it's like something went wrong there. Well, if you look at it too, the metrics have changed. When it was grow at all costs, the metric that you were getting funded by was how many funded accounts do you have on the platform? That has now changed. Now they've joined the rest of the world and realized, hey, we should be looking at like ARR and how much, how profitable yeah. you actually are and how much money do you yeah. actually make? So <laughs> none of these Fugazi metrics are are, uh, are going to work anymore. Well, you know what the the metrics were, right? It was um, funded accounts, right? So it's funny that a lot of these accounts, like funded, meant as little as one cent. So right. I remember, you know, doing uh, like we did some ad for Weeble, and it was like you just need to deposit one cent, and you'll get a hundred dollars in free stocks. And it was like that doesn't add up, right? Um, and it's funny that the fintech industry of all industries was the one not prioritizing good financials. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it what? is ironic, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, I think um, it's interesting to see like guys like Alan and uh, the Kadama guys because their businesses, they raised money for them. And then once the economy got tighter, they just had to lock in, right? Like what Alan did was everything was free. And then he just rolled out the $30 or $15 subscription, um, which has brought the business to several million in, in ARR. So well, I feel like impressive- that's high. That $15 feels high to me. When he told us it was 15, you know, I was like, well, when we talked to the Acorns guy, they're pricing at $3, $5, and $7, right? It's a fraction of that. And I think, again, it goes to show how just elastic the demand is in this space, like slight price increases, especially when you're targeting consumers on younger consumers. I just felt like $15 was a big ask. So. I think that's dumb. I think that's dumb that people would be price sensitive when it comes to building their wealth. Like what's going to like Bloom's going to give me the best education. I feel like that's what gave them the edge in the market is how quality their education was uh, and the curriculum they've built inside the app. Right. So I don't know. I think like $15 is nothing compared to like the millions of dollars of potential lifetime earnings or return or, per, you know, percentage returns that come from learning about fintech. But well, yeah, what he I mean, told us is he's finicky. raising. Yeah, what he told us is he's he's rolling out an eight dollar option, and it was primarily for that reason was just to test it out. Hey, if we decrease it in half, is it going to lead to a much higher increase in you know customer or user signups? I feel like this is unrelated, but I just it's like what Ramit Sethi, the money guy, said. It's like stop worrying about your small money decisions. People are always complaining about the dumbest things. It's like. I'm going to go get a car loan or at, you know, a thousand dollars a month out of my salary. And then I'm going to complain about spending an extra 10 bucks to get Paramount Plus because I want to watch Yellowstone. Like, 
I just, I don't know. I think that it's just an interesting consumer psychology point. Like people are just obsessing over these small subscriptions and not really caring about what the big money is in the, in the equation. Well, that assumes they're like sophisticated long-term thinkers, right? Like that's kind of why they're having money issues in the first place. Is like they're being very erratic <laughs> and spontaneous with their decision making. I also think but it I comes feel like down that's to like people. But it is most people. I also think it comes down to like how they bucket it in their head. When I think of a Netflix subscription or if I'm going to shell out 15 bucks for HBO Max, like it feels like entertainment to me. I just feel like I'm willing to spend way more for something that I truly enjoy versus something that may feel like work or learning. And I think yeah. the vast majority of people kind of fall in that space. Uh, I think the fact that he's doing subscriptions is a lot better than the interchange fees other companies are doing. I actually agree with that. And the fact that he's been able to convert a good chunk of his customers to get to several million in ARR, he told us, is a good leading indicator that people are actually willing to pay for what he creates, right? Like build something people are willing to pay for, right? I don't know if I like the subscription model all that much. Like I know really? that- I, I'm more of a fan in how Bolin approached it with Zogo, like getting the banks to pay for it. They're not price elastic customers, right? Like for them, they can afford to shell out millions of dollars if they get value from it. And how, like, if you look at it relative, what's going to be easier getting one bank to give you a big lump sum, you know, dollar amount, or is it going to be getting a million cut people to get, pay you $3? I feel like just channeling your energy on one big customer or two or three big customers in a, in a space like this would be way more fruitful. And it probably leads into a more natural acquisition if you want to sell at some point. I disagree because Bolin capped out very quick. Once he had Amex and Chase signed up for like the three-year deal or whatever it was, he can't go and sell to any more big fish, right? But like, I think as, it's as, how he structured it. Yeah. Well, it, you're saying maybe this guy could be, you know, giving the data to to these big banks on some kind of maybe a subscription basis or so you, you think they should be bankrolling the operation? It just goes back to like, do I like a B2C model or a B2B? Like in my head, B2B wins every day of the week. With Bolin, I felt like the issue was he capped those deals because he was playing a little bit more from like a defensive mindset. It was like, hey, let me just lock in this revenue for the next three years and I'm good. Yeah. We will be around. We'll figure it out. But, mm -hmm. you know, what was to stop him from including upside into the deal to say, hey, if we hit certain user targets or we hit certain literacy, you know, thresholds, then we'll unlock another X dollar amount or percentages. Like, I feel like there's there's always a way to strike those deals where you can win. But I guess it also comes down to like where your competency is. Like if you're building a company in this space in your early 20s, is it easier to go convince a million people on TikTok and just through, you know, viral content that like feels a lot easier or going to sell this to 50 year old dudes at a at a bank? Right. I, I feel like that's probably yeah. the big trade off. Yeah. You either like go and like shill to teenagers or you go and like try and beg for like traditional companies to take a chance on you. It's probably easier to get started with dumb teenagers. Well, when you look at it, I know there's not like a, a direct parallel here, but why I love our model with what we did with our future is we always sold to enterprises. We sold to really, really big companies who had high switching costs, right? It may take longer to sell to them, but once they're yeah. in, they are in. And I love that. That's like going to someone in who in this case I would equate to like, you know, um, uh, a, a smaller spender, more fickle, just like, 
going to give you a lot more headaches, um, is going to complain when, you know, they get $3 charged on their account when they wanted to, to unsubscribe. Like, that's just bullshit you have to deal with, right? Like, why not just you know, center all of your attention on getting the big fish and making sure you do as good of a job as you possibly can. Yeah, it definitely makes things more simple. That's for sure. Makes it simple. Yeah. And there's probably, probably can (laughs) in this complicated world. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I just feel like there's, there's a, a higher upside to be attained with them. Like if I know that I can charge a consumer and the most I can make from them is $7, $8 a month. Like that just, that feels like a hard game to me. Mm hmm. Yeah, that was the genius, dude. Just like, you know, pat on the back for ourselves, I guess, you know, just talk about ourselves. Like, yeah, we did. We, we, were, we were those TikTok guys, but we were those TikTok guys for the tech tech companies. You know what I'm saying? Like, we went after the big money, right? Absolutely. None of this small boy, none of that small boy shit. Like, we went after the premium clients with this service, which I think is something that no other kind of marketing short form video, new age kind of marketing tech the company did well this pretty much wraps up another episode of our future podcast as always we love to have the chance to chat it up with you guys week after week um please give us a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts and we will catch you next week on another episode of our future podcast stay frosty subscribe on youtube peace out